right. Well, we're going on to this question of speaking in tongues. And you know, before I get into it, just let me say um, what I want to do is look at the verses in 1 Corinthians, primarily a little bit in Acts, but in 1 Corinthians, that talk about this speaking in other tongues. It's kind of a, a controversial area today and, and somewhat of a unusual area to talk about. And um, in some churches, Pentecostal, charismatic churches, there's more visibility and affirmation given to this gift today. In other churches, people say, well, this gift doesn't exist today, and the people who say that it does are wrong, and, and they have different explanations for what's going on. I thought what I'd try to do mostly this morning is keep the discussion focused on what is going on in the church at Corinth. What, is the, what was this gift in the first century? And we can talk a little bit, if you want, about whether this gift is for today or not. But I thought, let's, at least on kind of neutral ground, look at what the New Testament says about the gift and uh, try to understand what was going on on that gift at that time. Um, and uh, as I often do, let me see if I can give you a one-sentence summary of what I think uh, that gift was um, at that time. I think that it was a person's spirit praying or praising God in syllables that the speaker was speaking, but that the speaker didn't understand because they were in a language the speaker didn't understand. What do you mean a person's Spirit praying. Now, there, this, Paul talks about that very explicitly. Um, um, you know, sometimes you you say, "I'm I'm I'm worried about something, but I can't figure out what I'm worried about," or "I'm I'm I've got this somewhere back in my mind. There's something I'm anxious about, but I'm not sure, or I'm afraid about something, but I had I can't sort it out, or." Or um, there may be times when you're just joyful and, you, and you're so busy during the affairs of the day, going from place to place, doing your work or doing your errands or whatever, that, that you, you can't, haven't quite settled in your mind to even think what. But, but in the background of, of your mind, maybe, I don't know if you'd call it your subconscious or your uh, kind of deep in your heart or something, there's something going on. Sometimes joy, sometimes sadness, sometimes uh, concern. And... And I think when Paul says, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, he's saying that that part of you that, that you're not quite sure what, what's going on, that that is actually communicating with God through these syllables. So, um, so I think that's what's happening. And, um, and of course, in those times when, when we just... <coughs> get some quiet time, we think, now, what is troubling me? Why am I so happy? Or what, what? Then you can kind of reflect, and sometimes then it comes, you can remember what, what it was or think about what it was. But this is Paul's, I think, explanation for what's going on. So, now, and do people think it's valid for today or not? It's no secret what I think, because it's been published for 20 years or something in, in things I've written. Yes, I do think the gift is valid for today. Do I think that uh, there are abuses and mistakes that have been made with it. Yes, of course. Um, do I agree with the Pentecostal view, the Foursquare Church or the Assemblies of God, 
that everybody should speak in tongues at least once as a sign of baptism in the Holy Spirit? No, I don't agree with that. Um, and that was back in chapter 39. For those of you who were here, I, I, I just I don't uh, agree with that teaching, and uh, I'll tell you why as we go through the verses. So that's where we're going. Let's see if I can get through this in about 20 minutes or so, and then we go on to the second coming of Christ. All right? So tongues and interpretation. <clears throat> First, kind of an explanatory note. Speaking in languages would be a better translation, I think, than speaking in tongues. Because the Greek word glossa at that time, it just meant the physical tongue in your mouth. Um, but then it also, as, as, as it can mean in English today, it, it also meant languages. So um, do, um, a person speaking in another tongue meant speaking in another language. And that's how people would have understood it in those days, speaking in languages. They wouldn't have had this kind of strange ring to it that it has speaking in tongues today. But... Tongues is so firmly fixed in English translation from at least the King James Version and maybe earlier than that, that I don't think there's any sense in trying to change it. So we're stuck with the phrase. So we go on and try to explain it. In the history of redemption, just go back and think about the whole history of the Bible. In Genesis 11, see, first, first Adam and Eve were speaking the same language, of course, and God communicated with them. And then everybody on earth was speaking the same language for the first ten chapters of the Bible. But they had increasing rebellion against God. And in Genesis 11, we have that story of the Tower of Babel where God confused their languages. So before that happened, there was a unified language used in rebellion against God to build the Tower of Babel. And to stop this, God confused the language of all the earth, Genesis 11:9, and scattered people abroad. So that all the different languages on earth today originate from God's... Um, imposing this diversity on a bunch of people. So they spoke all different languages and, and didn't understand each other. And then they stopped building this tower uh, and were scattered abroad. In God's call of Abraham, however, then there began to be just one people out of the earth and therefore one language out of all the languages of the world, all languages of the world, that was used in service to God. And all the other languages were still serving idols and worshiping idols and used in re rebellion against God. <clears throat> so, at the, uh, after the curse uh, of the diversion of languages, I guess it's a curse, a judgment, at uh, Genesis 11, there weren't any languages that were used in praise or worship of God, maybe a few scattered people. But uh, now uh, the call of Abraham and we have the Hebrew language being used in praise and worship of God. So that's one language. But now, um, in the new, now we skip all the way forward to the book of Revelation when Jesus comes back and there's a new heavens and a new earth. I think there will be a unity of language restored uh, for people so that all will praise God. Um, and uh, and they'll all be we'll all be able to understand each other, uh, whether we all speak all those different languages or whether God has us all speaking Hebrew or Greek or as my ancestors thought Swedish or Norwegian. Uh, <clears throat> I uh, I'm not sure, uh, but we'll be able to understand each other. And there are some verses there that I won't look at now in Revelation seven nine to twelve, and Zephaniah three uh, nine and First Corinthians thirteen eight and perhaps Isaiah 19, 18. In the New Testament church, there's something, a foretaste of that. So here, 
language, just one language used in worship of God, then all languages or everybody understanding all the same language used in worship of God. In the New Testament, there's kind of a partial step between just one language and all languages. There's, there's something of a foretaste of the unity of language that will exist in heaven, but it's given only at some times and only in a partial way. And uh, first, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit empowered the disciples to preach so that visitors to Jerusalem heard God's mighty works in their own languages. And so that is, uh, that's Acts 2, and you've read that many times. I'll just read the key section of it right here. Um, um, the day of Pentecost arrived, and the 120 are all in one place, and there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Apparently there is this picture of, of or, or appearance of fire. And I think the fire is a symbol of purification. So it's God's purifying, and there's tongues of fire, God's purifying, and apparently purifying language, and maybe them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages or other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it's a gift given by the Holy Spirit. And then the people, the, the Jews who were in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, Acts 2, 5, uh, came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed. Are not those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us here in his own native language? And it gives a whole bunch of uh, different areas of the world that people came from. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God, or in our own tongues. But others, uh, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. And then Peter says this is a fulfillment of the promise in Joel 2. And number two, in the church worship services, there was speaking in tongues plus interpretation. So someone would uh, say something in a language he didn't understand, and someone else would say, well, this is the meaning of it. So then there was a kind of a two-step process. It wasn't all the way to the final process where everybody understood everything, but it was kind of a halfway point to get there. And then there was a third thing, and that is private prayer in tongues that Paul talks about. It's an indication of restoration of fellowship with God. And so 1 Corinthians 14, 14 to 15, and I'll just, I'll just read that. Um, uh, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit. It means his own human spirit, the, the non-material part of us, what we call soul or spirit. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So he doesn't understand quite the content of these words. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, and, but I will pray with my mind also. In other words, he's saying sometimes I'll pray in tongues and sometimes I'll pray in Greek or Aramaic or, or Hebrew, whatever his native language was that he was most comfortable in. I will, praise with this, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Okay, so three different things that are kind of a partial on overcoming of the division of language at Babel. Now, what is speaking in tongues? Here's my definition. Speaking in tongues is prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. Um, I think it's prayer and prayer or praise. I don't think it's a message from God to the church because of these verses. 1 Corinthians 14.2, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. 1 Corinthians 14.14, 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. That's direction, that's speech directed to God. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 14.28, he categorizes speaking in tongues as praying or giving thanks. Uh, let him... Um, 
if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So it, it's, uh, it's uh, speaking to himself or to God. And so it seems like prayer or praise directed to God and it comes from the spirit of the person who is speaking. But it is not understood by the speaker. This is the unusual part about it. 1 Corinthians 14, 2, and then 13 to 19. Verse 2, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So here's the church at Corinth, and Corinth was a cosmopolitan city with people from all different nations passing through. It was a, a, a city with a lot of commerce, a lot of trade. But even in that city where there might be people speaking various languages and various backgrounds, Paul says, nobody, nobody understands. <clears throat> so <clears throat> no one understands him. He utters mysteries <clears throat> in the Spirit. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then um, the, going down to verse 13, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. If I pray in a tongue, my, mind, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, his mind doesn't understand what's going on. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit. I'll pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit. I'll sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? So if I just came in here and started, well, I don't know, we, we were in Albania in December, and every once in a while, some of the speakers would give a little talk, some of the people introducing us, they'd give a talk in Albanian. And let me tell you, I didn't understand one word of Albanian, except if they said grudem or, or asmus, then I figured it out. But, but, but uh, I, I couldn't say amen, and I didn't know what was going on. Uh, but if someone gave me one of these little headphones, where the little guy in the booth over there was simultaneously translating into English, then I could say amen, or whatever. I could understand. So, uh, Paul says, if people don't understand what you're saying, how can they say amen to what you're, what, what you're thanksgiving? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And then Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Very interesting. So Paul used this gift. Um, um, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he'd rather speak in a language that people understood. In that city, it would be Greek, ordinarily. This, I think, is really convincing evidence against the idea that speaking in tongues was speaking, was always speaking known foreign languages that somebody there understood. Paul says, nobody understands it. So it isn't a known foreign language. And if it was the ability to speak in a known foreign language, for, as it was it, it was it Acts. Yeah, people understood it at that instance. But it seems like ordinarily in the church, it wasn't a known foreign language because... Uh, Paul says he does this more than all of you, but not in church. Well, that means he's doing it in private. Well, if it's a known foreign language, why is he doing this in private, where nobody who knows the language can understand him? So, uh, so I, I just am not persuaded by people who, uh, uh, who say it was a known language. It was a known language in Acts, but I don't think <clears throat> that means it always was. I think that was a, um, just a, a one-time event. And the doctrinal material here in 1 Corinthians explains the general case. In Acts 2, tongues, <clears throat> uh, because of Acts 2, tongues may at times be in actual human languages. The hearers understood. 
So here, uh, some people say, well, speaking in tongues must, well, this must always consist of speech in known human languages, since that is what happened at Pentecost. But my response is, the fact that that happened once in Scripture doesn't require that it always happened that way, especially when 1 Corinthians 14 indicates the opposite. Paul does not say that foreign visitors to Corinth will understand the speaker, but no one will understand. That seems to me pretty decisive. And also in 1 Corinthians 14, it's Paul's general instruction based on wide experience of tongue speaking in many different churches Acts 2 describes one unique event at a significant turning point in redemptive history, and I think God uh, allowed there to to be languages then that people here understood so we could see the kind of uh, completion of the uh, speaking and understanding uh, what was going on, confirming that there was validity to it, I guess. It's prayer with the spirit, not with the mind. This is what I said at the very beginning before we started the outline. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What will I do? And basically he says, well, sometimes I'll pray in tongues and sometimes I'll pray in Greek because I understand Greek. uh, Sometimes I'll praise God in tongues and sometimes I'll praise God in Greek or whatever he was speaking, maybe uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. I will pray with my spirit. I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Paul is not talking about the Holy Spirit praying through us. Rather, it's our spirit praying. And the reason I think that has to be so, he says, my spirit and my mind. The contrast between my spirit and my mind means it's constituent parts of himself as a human being, Um, not not the Holy Spirit within him. Uh, Though the Holy Spirit empowers it, it's not the Holy Spirit praying. But his mind does not have to formulate words and sentences and decide what to pray for. So that's where there is a benefit, spiritually a benefit to this gift. Why would God give such a gift? Maybe to keep us humble and prevent intellectual pride, Remind us that God is greater than our understanding. He works in ways that transcend our understanding. And he works in the unseen spiritual realm in many areas. Regeneration, prayer, worship, spiritual warfare, and things that I can't read because they're too far down on the slide here. But, but other, other ways. Okay. Um, now, what happens when somebody speaks in tongues? Well, um, people who claim that they have this gift today... Say, it's just like speaking in, in a language I understand, like English. I'm, I'm totally in control of what I'm doing. I can be driving or, you know, whatever. And, um, and I can start or stop it at will. And that is confirmed, I think, by Paul's description, where it does not seem to be ecstatic, but self-controlled. 1 Corinthians 14, 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So people are taking turns. They're not kind of out of control just kind of in a, in a frenzy or something like that, that's orderly. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Well, that's not ecstatic speech where the speaker loses awareness or self-control and speaks against his or her will. It seems like those who spoke in tongues were aware of what was going on and were able to control themselves and take turns and be quiet if there wasn't anybody to interpret. Now, how do you handle this, Paul says, in the church? Well, if there's no interpreter present, nobody present who's known to have the gift of interpretation, speaking in tongues should be done in private. And so uh, Paul says, I will pray or sing with the Spirit, and he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. 
so um, hear this. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. That's privately when you're riding in your chariot to go some other place or, or walking from city to city or out in the field or whatever in private. Um, but Paul says if believers speak in tongues without interpretation in church, they will be acting and thinking like children. And he says, don't do this. And so here's what's going on in this passage. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brother, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants and evil, but in your thinking be mature. And then he gives this quotation from Isaiah 28. In the law, it's written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I'll speak to this people. And even then they will not understand me, says the Lord. So, so here the context is, God has been warning, warning, warning the people of Israel that they've been straying from him and they need to return to him and they reject his warning. He warns them again, they reject it. He warns them again, they reject it. Finally, he says, all right, the next time I speak to you, it's going to be through the Assyrians and the Assyrian army is going to come and conquer you and they're going to be speaking a language you don't understand. And it'll be judgment. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a culmination of judgment. And so here's what's going to happen, says, says Isaiah. Uh, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners, I'll speak to this people. And even then they'll not listen to me, says the Lord. And then they're going to be carried off into exile. So, so Paul takes a warning passage from the Old Testament and says, this is still 1 Corinthians 14 that I'm quoting. He says here, Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. What kind of sign? I think he means a sign of judgment for unbelievers. Tongues are a sign of judgment for unbelievers. It's in this context of... <laughs> I've got to pick on somebody, so I'll pick on Mike Langley. Okay, so Mike's in the church at Corinth. Mike is standing up and he's speaking in tongues, and there's nobody present uh, who can interpret. And there are unbelievers, and there are outsiders who are just visiting. And they come into this church and say, these people are crazy. There's this guy, Mike, and he's speaking in tongues and he's speaking in all these languages that nobody understands. And See, Paul says, no good. This is, not, this is not the way to treat outsiders. Nobody understands it. They'll just go away and say, <clears throat> if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and unbelievers or outsiders enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? <laughs> all right. So no good. Paul says, don't do that. <clears throat> so tongues are a sign of judgment. Not for believers, but for unbelievers, for rebellious people against God. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't give tongues without interpretation. Because then you'll drive them away. It's like the Assyrians coming to the Israelites. Well, but then here's, see, here's what puzzled people for a time. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So he's going to get on and talk about prophecy in a minute. And he kind of sticks this in. And... And I think the key to understanding that is that here he means it's a sign of blessing for believers. So prophecy is a sign of blessing for believers. And then he goes on and says, if all prophesy, an unbeliever or outsider comes in. He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. Because he can understand it, see? And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And 
falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is truly among you. So speak in a way that can be understood in church. All right? Now, um, so that's the context of Isaiah 28. Does that mean that Paul's saying don't speak in tongues at all? No. Understand what he says in the context. He says if you speak in tongues, there's got to be somebody interpreting so the outsiders know what's going on. All right? It's another argument that it's not known languages. Okay, but then here's what Paul concludes with. If all prophesy, uh, and an unbeliever outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is truly among you. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But then Paul goes on to explain, well, what about tongues where there is interpretation? Then he says there's edification for the church. So he says in 1 Corinthians 14:5, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And greater, I mean, think he means brings more blessing to the church. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So there, when tongues are interpreted, Paul says the message of tongues is as valuable for the church as prophecy. He doesn't say they have the same function, because I think prophecy is God brings something to mind and you say it to the church. But, but he say the same value. But, but tongues are... You're praying or praising, and then, then there's interpretation, and there's benefit to the church. And the interpretation, then, would mean reporting to the church the general meaning of something spoken in tongues. Finally, you know, does somebody have a copy of this outline that I'm teaching? It's a, let me see if there's one here. Just so I know where I'm going. I'm almost done. Okay, um, not all speak with tongues, Paul says. And here's where I differ with um, um, Pentecostal or charismatic, uh, much kind of Pentecostal or charismatic teaching. I think Paul says this is like other gifts. Not everybody speaks in tongues. Some do, but not all. First Corinthians 12:30. Are all apostles? What would you answer? No. no, no. Paul's an apostle. Peter's an apostle. Not all. Everybody's an apostle. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Implied answer in all those cases is no. But nothing in Scripture says that only a few will receive this gift, and Paul sees it as edifying So, uh, in prayer and worship. It wouldn't be surprising if there was a widespread distribution of it, and many Christians received it. And, of course... In uh, many parts of the world, uh, Pentecostal and charismatic groups have just expanded by the, I guess, tens of millions um, around the world. And uh, there are many who speak in tongues, um, sometimes without much teaching or instruction or understanding and with, I suppose, many mistakes being made. But uh, on the other hand, the mistakes don't make me want to say, well, this isn't in the Bible. It looks to me like it's in the Bible. Now, I've heard people say, wait a minute, I read this story of someone who was speaking in tongues and, and you know what? Later, he, it was revealed to him um, that it was a demonic spirit. And he was really speaking blasphemies and curses against God. And, um, and uh, so, uh, so we better be aware of this. We better think this is dangerous and not allow this gift today. Because what if we, well, we don't understand what we're saying? Maybe we're saying really bad things. Well... My approach is to say, well, let's, let's kind of 
get the balance of the viewpoint that Paul himself has in 1 Corinthians. What is his perspective? It doesn't seem to be Paul's concern, even in Corinth. And I didn't put the verse up here, but 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul says what uh, uh, pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I, I've, been, I've been in the city of Corinth. I've walked around the ancient ruins of the city of Corinth. You've got the temple to this and the temple to that and the temple to this and the temple to that. All these Greek foreign Greek gods were being worshipped by people all over the place. And, you know, there's meat market there with food offered to idols that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. There was a lot of demon worship, honestly, going on in Corinth. And Paul says so in 1020. But Paul doesn't say, even with all that kind of demonic background to these Corinthians, he doesn't say, I want you all to be afraid of speaking in tongues. It's not his concern. In fact, and maybe to address that, he says, I, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And so, I think he's saying, if the Holy Spirit gives you this gift, then don't worry that it's... You know, the Holy Spirit's more powerful than these demons. And, uh, and uh, it's a positive thing. Now, uh, evaluating that, I suppose you could say, well, is there positive fruit in someone's life if you believe this for today? If you don't believe it's for today, then, uh, you know, you say, how did they evaluate it at the ancient world? That's fine. Um, but Paul says this isn't going to happen. The Holy Spirit will protect you. And then is Romans 8, 26 to 27 related to speaking in tongues? We don't know how to, what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't think so. Uh, Paul doesn't mention speaking in tongues here. It might be kind of a similar idea of groans and sighs that the Holy Spirit makes into effective prayer, but I wouldn't say it's speaking in tongues. Okay. Can you, Jason, push the B on the... Thanks. Okay. What's your name way in the back? Richard. Uh, I'd like to ask a question uh, about speaking in tongues. I would wonder, we've got a big crowd here, whether there's anybody that has actually spoken tongues and would be willing to share their experience. I don't know. I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. So if somebody wants to, I guess that's fine. Um, okay, what's your name up here in front? Marco, okay. Uh, for me personally, uh, speaking in tongues has been a, a normal part of my Christianity. Okay, you got you got an answer. <laughs> yeah, um, really from early times, and um, not in an extreme Pentecostal way, but it just really more in my personal before the Lord, and um, actually a very very helpful, you know, gift, you know. So, thanks. Okay. <laughs> you know what you're saying. Um. You know, I don't know what I'm saying, but if I don't, sometimes I can just ask the Lord and and just flood of thoughts will come to me. Okay. And it'll be a clear like, wow, does, where did that come from? That does it was, seem to you like you're praying? Or it does it seem to okay. me like I'm praying. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks. I have a question. Other questions? Yeah, Marco. <laughs> um, how could we, how would you positively encourage somebody to begin speaking in tongues? <laughs> I um, I'm going to tell you, Marco. I I want to be subject to the leadership of the church here, and I um, 
I didn't ask permission to teach this. It's all stuff in my systematic theology book. Um, but if I start saying to people, here's what you do, A, B, C, D, I think I'd better get a lot of clearance from a lot of people before I start doing that in a Sunday school class at Scottsdale Bible Church. I hope you don't mind that I... Okay. Um, um, I, what I'm trying to do is, is what I've done through 53 chapters of this book, probably 100 weeks, is lay out what the teaching of the Bible is on these different topics. And I thought to be faithful to the topic, I should do that today. And what I think is, is very much, it's been in print. Um, so I think I'll, I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> uh, I think it has happened that many people who have started speaking tongues have just, in their prayer time, just started speaking syllables that they didn't understand and it turned into a sense of prayer or praise. It wasn't a big, complicated deal. So I'm trying to make all of these gifts not super complicated, but just things the Holy Spirit does in people's lives. So, All right. Yeah, what's your name here? Michael? You talked about interpretation. How do you, um, and I, I've witnessed someone speaking in tongues on stage and then someone offering an interpretation. Yes. How do you authenticate the, interp- the interpretation? Meaning. Okay. Um, now I will tell a personal story here. I was in a group of people when I was back teaching at Trinity, a group of people in a home, and uh, it was just kind of a gathering of some Christians, and we prayed afterward. Um, prayed together, and, and I can't remember all the people. There were, there were some people connected with Trinity Divinity School I was, and I'm not sure who else. I think everybody maybe there was. And someone prayed in tongues, and three people at the same time had a verse from Psalm 110 that came to their minds and mentioned it. Well, I said, that one seems like a no-brainer. Um, where three different people said, when, when you were praying in tongues that this verse came to my mind, and someone else said, that verse came to my mind, and someone else said, that verse came to my mind. And they're mature Christians, and they're not lying, I don't think. I think they're telling the truth. So that seemed like there was verification because there was confirmation. There was fruitfulness. So, is a positive fruit. You know what? Mature Christians have a sense in their spirit often whether something's from the Lord or not. Um, and uh, I was in a church once where we, I was in a church, we were visiting a church in California, not our own church, we are visiting, and, um, no, you know, I may be conflating two stories, but I was in church once where someone started speaking in tongues, and it just felt to me forced, and like, in the flesh, and just someone trying to do the same thing as happened the previous three weeks, and it just it didn't feel right to me. I was a visitor. I didn't say anything, but it just felt wrong. So that's it. And I think if people have leadership roles in a church, then God gives them pretty good judgment on discerning that. Sandy? Go ahead. Just two thoughts. Um, something that I've been saying <clears throat> for years when I have speaking opportunities that I hadn't ever applied to the gift of tongues before, but it is certainly applicable, it seems to me. <laughs> and you'll have to forgive me. It's probably my background as, as a therapist. But, And I say this to myself, first of all. Don't entirely trust anything you do for God when you have an audience. Hmm. 
In other words, I think the real measure of our relationship with God and our hearts toward God mm-hmm. is how we interact with him in private. Mm-hmm. And it's true of prayer. I mean, you've heard people preach sermonettes in their public prayers yeah. and, and <clears throat> you know, attack people and, and certain groups in their public prayers. So I say that to my own heart, mm-hmm. that it's when I'm alone with God, that's, that's who I really am with God. Mm-hmm. And so I think that anything that we do when we have an audience, we... We just shouldn't entirely trust. And then the other thing is, any gift, any of these gifts, the point is not the gift. The point is the giver. Mm-hmm. And when we begin to pay more attention to the gift than we do to the giver, yeah. then we've gotten off track, Good. I think. Good, Cindy. Um, would you consider moving back to Arizona? <laughs> <laughs> If you can talk my children and grandchildren into moving closer. <laughs> okay. Anything else? Any other comments? Steve? Can you reconcile the, uh, Go ahead. Reconcile the verse where Paul says that no one will understand, no one can understand, and then the verses that require interpreters? I think he means no one understands without interpretation. Because the context of the first 25 verses of 1 Corinthians is is fine with interpretation because people understand, but don't do it without interpretation because then no one understands. Okay? So that, if that contrast is kept in mind, then I think when we read through it, it, it makes sense. Is that, is that helpful? Okay. Good. Anything else about this? Uh, Clyde? Okay, Clyde, and then... All right, go ahead, and then get a microphone up here to Clyde. And Jason, um, can you keep the... File for 53 open because there's a hymn at the end that we're going to sing. But then you open 54, which is the Return of Christ chapter. I want to start on that in a minute or two. Okay. Um, yeah, what's your name? Tom. Tom, Tom yeah, from, I've met you before. Uh, at an evangelical church in Papua New Guinea, very Christian church, two or three elders got up and very animated, jumping around, kind of babble. I was skeptical. But I have to say that in the setting for that culture, the others sitting around me, it seemed to be it worked for them. It was, yeah. it was part of their service. They yeah. they were impressed. They were engaged. Yeah. So I was uncomfortable with it. But <laughs> everyone else seemed to love it. So. Okay. All right. And I don't know if it happened often because I only went twice. Yeah, okay. It only happened okay. once when Thanks. I was there. Tom. Okay. It seemed to be edifying for the people in the church. Okay. Okay. Clyde? Yeah, in Acts 2, it says they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. Yep. You said that was a known language. I believe I've it was. I thought of that as speaking in tongues any other time because it said the hearers heard in their own language, which was the interpretation. There was every nation under heaven present at that time. It would be hard to realize there was that many languages being spoken at the same time. So wasn't the tongues of speaking just the gift of tongues? And the interpretation being what the people heard, the hearing. I um, think the key word there is they heard in their own language. Yeah. Um, verse 6, Clyde says, they were hearing them, each one, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I, I, I don't think so. I think the in his own language modifies speak there, hearing him speak in his own language. Um, 
So as far as every nation under heaven, I, I don't think it means every single one of the maybe thousands of languages that were there at that time. I think it was um, the, no, the known nations of the world and they're listed, that kind of thing, or the, the, the civilized world or the, you know, it was kind of a, a generalization. So. Okay, I know we could talk about this for a long time. All right, one last one and then we'll go on to the return of Christ and get started okay. on that. Uh, thanks, Dr. Groom. I have a quick question on, on verse 4 of chapter 1 Corinthians 14. Yeah. Um, it just kind of, the verse says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. And then kind of in the outline you talked about, or one of your points in the outline said, <clears throat> why would God give such a gift? Yeah. It's perhaps to keep us humble and prevent intellectual pride. Yeah. Um, is that, does that verse builds up himself not necessarily is not necessarily a reference to pride, but more so like encouraging his his own faith. Yeah, I think so. I mean, just if I spend time in prayer in English, it builds up my own mm-hmm. heart, my own soul. So I think Paul's saying if he prays in tongues, it's edifying for himself, builds up himself. Mm-hmm. I think that's what. Now people have said, well, wait a minute, gifts are to use for other people, not for yourself, and I. I think we've got explicit teaching here from Paul that says this this is positive. And so just like reading the Bible privately builds up myself, but it's so that I can minister to others. So prayer privately builds up, you know, there's edification or worshiping privately is edifying to myself. But so anyway, that's where I would go with that. Okay. Okay. One, was I going to say one last thing? I guess not. I guess not. No, I had something else. Well... I think I should... Oh, yeah, I was going to say the ESV Study Bible had me as the general editor. And on this issue of spiritual gifts, I think that all these gifts exist in the church today, but we have to guard against misuse. But our New Testament editor, Tom Schreiner at Southern Seminary in Louisville, had a view that he, he was leaning toward a cessationist view, that these miraculous gifts are not for today, but they ended in the first century. So in all the notes in the ESV study Bible, you'll get two opinions. <laughs> that is, you'll get, uh, he and I wanted to be fair to each other's viewpoint. And so we kind of took an even-handed approach to this. And people say prophecy and tongues aren't for today. Um, then that, that viewpoint also has arguments in the, in the study Bible. And the argument of people who say that these aren't for today like Richard Gaffin, my friend and the New Testament professor at at Westminster Seminary, or Palmer Robertson, another professor that I had at Westminster Seminary, their writings will say, no, we think this is uh, given from the Holy Spirit, so it's words that equal the Bible in authority. And of course, we don't have any more Bible today, and so we're not going to have this gift uh, functioning today either, because that if you get it and then it's interpreted that it would add to the words of the Bible because it's God's very words. Now, I don't agree with that, but that's their argument coming from the fact that it's prompted by the Holy Spirit. And there are other people, as I've alluded to, who say, well, it was, it was known languages in Acts, so if a missionary is given a gift to speak a tribal language miraculously, then I'm thankful for it and will allow that today. But if it's not a known human language used in evangelism, then we won't allow it for today. So that would be kind of that position on the other side, just to, just to be fair. Um, but I haven't given equal time. Um, but, but, uh, but in the back of the Systematic Theology book in Chapter 53, the bibliography, you can read further literature on both sides. All right. We're ready to go to the next chapter.
Now we'll get to something non-controversial. <laughs> All right. Uh, the return of Christ. When and how? When and how? When and how will Christ return? Could he come back at any hour? Could Christ come back this morning before the class ends? <laughs> that would be great, <laughs> says Alan. <laughs> okay. Good for you. Okay. Well, um, this begins a whole new unit in this book, and the last unit in the book, Systematic Theology, that we've been going through. And the unit is on the last things in history. And the technical term for that is eschatology. Eschatology, the study of the last things. The Greek adjective eschatos means last. Okay? And sometimes in, in theological writing, people talk about the eschaton, which means the, the things that happen at the end or the state of affairs at the end of time. Uh, the end of this age. I don't think time is ever going to end in itself, but the end of this age. And so we can divide eschatology into two parts. Personal eschatology, that's future events that will happen to individuals, such as death and then the intermediate state when we're in heaven with the Lord but without a body. And then glorification, receiving a resurrection body when Christ returns. We've talked about all those things earlier. And then there's general eschatology. That's the study of certain major events that will affect the entire universe. The second coming of Christ, the millennium, the final judgment, eternal punishment for believers, eternal for eternal punishment for unbelievers, I'm sorry, and eternal reward for believers and life with God in the new heavens and new earth. That's all general eschatology, and that is what we'll be covering for the next several sessions here in this class. First, I'm going to start out, before I get to disputed areas about the millennium and the tribulation, I'm going to start out with the things that I think all evangelical believers should agree on. And that is point A. See, does everybody have this outline now? If you, need, if you need an outline, hold up your hand. If you don't have this outline. Uh-oh. Yep. Kathy needs one. Kathy Mobley over here. And a couple others. Just keep your hand in the air and we'll get one too. All right. There will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. I think all believers should agree on this if they believe the Bible. Um, and Jesus' appearing will be personal and bodily, that is, in his resurrection body. So John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This is Jesus who left and who is coming back. Acts 1, 11, The angel said, <clears throat> as the disciples watched, Jesus ascending up into heaven after his resurrection, 40 days after his resurrection, he was ascending up into, <clears throat> into heaven. And, and the angels then appeared to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, he's going to come back, uh, coming down from heaven in the same way. I think that means in, in the same uh, physical body which he, with which he ascended into heaven. The perfect, resurrected, glorified body. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 4:16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's a dramatic event. Jesus is coming back. 
and there's, there's a loud cry uh, or, or a command. Um, I don't know. Prepare to meet him or, or the Lord is coming or, or even um, uh, a, a call to the, to, the, uh, to the dead to rise from the earth. As Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth. Cry of command, the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God echoing through the skies. One of the greatest pieces of music in all history is the trumpet shall sound, Handel's Messiah, from this passage. Um, the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And it, I don't know, it goes on for six or seven minutes in Handel's Messiah. Just a majestic, majestic, beautiful, uh, heavenly trumpet tune. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. He's coming. And there are many other passages, many other passages, we'll get to more of those soon, about Christ coming back. I was, when I was in college, a long time ago, I went to hear a public debate between a Harvard Divinity School professor, Harvey Cox, and an evangelical theology professor, Carl F.H. Henry, who has now gone to be with the Lord. And I was sitting in the back, and, and Carl Henry did very, very well in that debate against Harvey Cox, but Harvey Cox was just a classical mocking skeptic. <clears throat> you don't think that Jesus is coming back on the clouds of heaven? And he just laughed in mockery. But yes, I do think that. And uh, Carl Henry did think that, and believers throughout the ages have thought that. So he's coming back. And so it's not just, when I say personal, visible, bodily return of Christ, it's not just <clears throat> the ideas of Christ are going to gain prominence or the spirit of Christ, loving one another, are going to come back in great force on the earth. That's a, that's a liberal denial, a liberal idea of denial of the, of the truthfulness of the Bible. But, um, but it's, a, it's a personal, bodily return of Christ. And, point B, we should eagerly long for Christ's return. Now, here's where we're going. We should long for Christ's return, and, um, and we do not know when Christ will return. <laughs> and we're not, this is where I wanted to get to today, but I didn't do this. Uh, could Christ come back at any time? Some people say yes, but then other people say, wait a minute, the, the, the conversion of the Jewish people hasn't happened, the... Famines and the earthquakes haven't come, and, and, and uh, the preaching the gospel to all nations hasn't happened, and the great tribulation. So wait a minute, we've got all these signs to have. So that's what we're going to come back and solve next week. <laughs> because I'm out of time.